0: Hear the word of God from Isaiah and Matthew's Gospel. Isaiah 49, 1-6. Listen to me, all you in distant lands. Pay attention, you who are far away. The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and you will bring me glory. I replied, but my work seems so useless. I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. Yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. And now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me and my God has given me strength. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Matthew fifteen twenty one through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church family. Good to be able to worship with all of you this morning. I hope and pray that you're encouraged by our time together this morning. My prayer for this particular sermon today is that you see Jesus. Really, that's my prayer for most every sermon I've ever preached, but in particular today, this is such a somewhat confusing sermon, so I want you to really see who he is and get to know him better. You see, we have a very interesting text this morning. We're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew, and today we're in this Matthew 15 where Jesus runs into this Canaanite woman. And in this text, we see and experience some words from Jesus that makes you, makes me at least not just take a step back, but like a leap back and say, what? What did Jesus just say? No, Jesus wouldn't say that. Not Jesus. What is he meaning here? It's one of the statements that, like if I was working with Jesus, if I was one of his disciples, I'd have been like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what Jesus said. What Jesus meant to say was dogs and bread and bread is good and dogs are good. So we should feed dogs. Yes, that's what Jesus meant to say. I'll be one of those guys that's like, going do a little PR for Jesus, like, well, that's not what he meant. And just so one of those confusing passages, like, what do you do with this? So let's dive into it together as a family, and may it encourage you. Our text begins in Matthew 15, 21. And Jesus completed a very hectic ministry in the region of Galilee in the area of Capernaum. He and his disciples have tried to find a secluded spot in order to get some rest, and for Jesus to give his disciples further information. They had gone to the northern tip of Sea of Galilee to an area that Scripture described as a lonely place. But they didn't stay lonely for a long time because the crowds followed Jesus. And there Jesus having compassion on them. This way he did this big miracle of, of feeding them and teaching them. And he did the whole thing with loaves and fish. Then he sent his disciples back south on his boat. And then Jesus went and the multitude followed them. But that's when Jesus did the whole walking on water thing. And Peter kind of was like walking for a little bit. Then he sank down. And then they reached this area uh, south of Capernaum where they also could not get any peace and quiet because people recognized Jesus and immediately sent for all their sick. And Jesus again compassionately healed them. And then in verse 21, we find that Jesus has left the area of Galilee completely. It says he went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, what is now Lebanon. Tyre is about 50 miles south of modern-day Beirut and Sidon was halfway between the two. So in Jesus' time as now, the cities were outside the boundaries of Israel, and they were Gentile cities. So why did Jesus go there? Now, there are several possible reasons why Jesus came there. He could have still been looking for that quiet place to get away, a secluded place to go and teach his disciples. Remember, that's what Jesus was trying to do. That's what he'd been doing for a while, but the crowds kept on following him. They could have also been trying to avoid Herod. At this point, remember, King Herod had just had John the Baptist killed, and Jesus was kind of like up next in John's footsteps. But that doesn't sound right because Jesus wouldn't have been afraid of Herod. I believe Jesus intentionally went to a Gentile city somewhat further away to teach disciples a very valuable lesson. It's a lesson in direct contrast to what the Pharisees taught. It's a lesson on who the gospel is for and what makes one an insider versus an outsider. Guys, growing up as a Korean American minority in this great country, I kind of knew what it was like to feel like an outsider. It did not quite fit in, did not feel comfortable sometimes. I knew what like to feel like an outsider, to be treated like an outsider. I had a hard time kind of finding my place. I mean I was I was born in America, raised to speak English, and my experience was one of being an American. But I was made to feel my otherness by other people in my life over and over again. From the way I was made fun of for the, the food I would eat or bring to school lunch, or to the statements made about my eyes or subtle differences in in foreignness and culture. Honestly, I grew up feeling like an outsider. I honestly even remember going to Korea with my family when I was in seventh grade. And going to Korea there, I even felt more like my otherness even more strongly when I went to Korea. From not being able to speak the language well to being told how dark my skin was compared to other Koreans there, I felt like an outsider in Korea. And so growing up, my experience was, I feel like an outsider in America because everyone else makes me aware of my otherness. In Korea, I was made aware of my outsider status because my otherness was made aware. And so honestly, in many ways, my life has felt like being an outsider in so many circumstances. And part of, I think, even the way I started coping in relationships and trying to be a people pleaser, trying to be kind of larger than life with Gary's person was because I wanted to fit in everywhere I was around. I can't be certain, but I'm pretty sure most of you have ever felt like an outsider at some point in your life, right? Ang Lee, this incredible Oscar-winning movie director of movies like Sense and Sensibility, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, The Life of Pi, actually shared a quote during an interview once. He says, I'm a drifter and an outsider. There's that one single environment to which I totally belong to. And he was talking about how he felt like an outsider in the Chinese film market, how he felt like an outsider in the Hollywood film market. In a moment of vulnerability, he just felt like, I don't know where to belong. I just don't fit in anywhere. I wonder if you can relate to that. Truth be told, being an outsider is a reality that I think so many of us experience. Perhaps that's especially the case when it comes to church, right? Oftentimes, a lot of people, do they feel like outsiders in the church, as if like, the church is a, a cool club, or a, a club at least. Maybe not cool. We might not have the, the rule locked out on coolness. But our passage this morning is the account of what happens when Jesus meets an outsider. Let's look back here at Matthew 21. Notice how Matthew speaks about the woman who meets Jesus. He says she's a Canaanite who has come out to Jesus from the region of Tyre and Sidon. In, in Jesus' culture, it was unacceptable for a rabbi, a religious teacher, to talk to a woman at all. And certainly not to a Canaanite woman. They were the ancestral enemies of the Jewish people. So she's the epitome, double times the outsider. And let's look at how Jesus deals with her. She comes begging for help in verse 23, and he doesn't respond at all, not a word. And then when the disciples press Jesus in verse 24, he reminds them that he did not come to minister to any but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's a Canaanite; she's not really a part of his mission. And I think I know how I would have responded at this point if I was in this woman's shoes overhearing these words from the man I was pleading for help. I would have left. I would have said, forget you. Oh, I guess all the, all the word about you being this compassionate, kind, healing person can't be true. Look at the way you're treating me. I'm out of here. But this remarkable woman does, doesn't do that, does she? And you have to admire her determination. She will not be ignored. Instead, she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. First, she meets with silence. Then she overhears rejection. Now, to cap it off, Looks like Jesus comes out with a direct insult. Verse 26, it says, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did he just call her a dog? I mean, it's hardly not the most secret sensitive approach to a, a person coming to you. And in fact, isn't this kind of fear, judgmentalism, hostility the thing that people worry about when they come to church? Right? It's the kind of thing that keeps some people away from what we consider inside of the church. They're afraid that their outsider status will be met with this harsh hostility, this judgmentalism, or even with outright disdain. So they stay away. But what's really going on here? I mean, it's a perplexing passage to be sure, but if we take a closer look, I hope that you'll begin to see that actually Jesus isn't pushing away this woman at all. In fact, he's drawing her out. He's working to make obvious to the disciples who are with him that what he already knows to be true about her. Jesus isn't trying to be a jerk here. He's teaching, and he's not really teaching the Canaanite woman, she got, she's getting it. He's teaching the disciples. He's teaching the church about who the insiders are and who the outsiders really are. So let's take another look at this. And the first thing I want us to see, and I think Jesus is teaching his disciples, that the first thing he wants them to see is this woman's faith. It comes out especially clearly when you notice her perseverance. It comes out in, verse, in the verb in verse 22 translated into our version of crying out. It involves the idea of something she began and continued to do. She kept on crying out. She kept on pursuing. She persevered. She will not stop. And when first Jesus did not respond, she's not put off. And even when she overhears his disciples describing his mission as targeting only Jewish people and instead of accepting defeat, she steps up her plea verse 25 she came and knelt before him saying lord help me and when jesus finally does answer her with this difficult word about throwing not throwing children's bread to dogs she replies with in my opinion a witty statement that shows her ingenuity even her good humor and if it deflects his apparent insult yet still finds a way to press hard for the solution she seeks she says yes lord but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table Now, while we're kind of struggling over Jesus' words here, we're left in no doubt where this woman stands. With every obstacle thrown in her path, each one more difficult than the last, her faith in Jesus as the only person out there who can possibly help her shines brighter and brighter and brighter. The harder the response to clear her faith. Until this climactic moment, this encounter in verse 28, when Jesus says this incredible word of praise that's kind of really unmatched anywhere. She says, woman, you have great faith. He addresses her personally. He addresses her that he wasn't allowed to. He wasn't supposed to. But he addresses her personally and says, make this bold proclamation. It doesn't say about anybody else really. He says, you have great. This huge word, great. This, this making it not just you have faith. This great faith. Your request is granted which along the way was Jesus' goal all along. Her great faith has overcome every hindrance, every obstacle, and took a hold of Jesus. His difficult way of dealing with her has made it impossible now to hide the glowing genuineness of her trust in him. Whatever else we may say about this difficult exchange, we have to join Jesus in admiring her confidence in Christ alone. The fact is, after this encounter, what's indisputable is that her faith is true. And that's what Jesus' point was. It's why he drew it out, because he wanted his disciples to see that that faith is not meant just for the, the Jew, but it's also for the Gentile. A key element that I want you to understand about this woman's faith is the object and focus of it. It's not that she just believes that her daughter will get well. She doesn't have this abstract idea that this guy is just a good healer and her daughter will get well. No, her faith has an object. It has a focus. Look at the way she addresses Jesus in verse 22. It says, Lord, son of David... Have mercy on me. First of all, she calls him Lord. This is a title of significance, speaking of Christ's deity and to her own submission to him. But then she combines it with son of David. It really expresses her conviction. Jesus is God's Messiah, the promised heir of Israel's greatest king, the one who came to save God's people from their sin. She knows Jesus can de- deliver her demonized daughter and shower her with mercy. So when, when, when Jesus kind of, says, kind of goes away in verse 24, she comes and kneels before him and repeats her request, Lord, have mercy. This idea of kneeling was to show her devotion, to show that there is his divinity, his, his sovereignty. It's to show worship. And while the woman herself might not fully understand the significance of everything that she says and does here, Matthew, in Matthew's language, as he reports it to us, is designed to signal to us, the reader, what is really happening. She's confessing Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as her own Lord. She's submitting to him. Guys, you need to get this. She's a Canaanite woman. She's a worshiper of Baal and Asheroth and all these other idols and God. She shouldn't be worshiper of the Messiah, but she's acknowledging that he is the chosen one, the king, the Messiah. And even when she's challenged as an outsider, she, she claims a place at the master's household, however lowly that place is. She knows that Jesus and only Jesus has the mercy she needs. Her faith has an incredible focus. She puts all her faith in Jesus alone. You see, guys, I believe to show the faith and to show the so-called insiders who think they're really insiders, what it really takes to be insiders was the purposes of Jesus' behavior. I mean, first, Jesus ignores her. How could he do that? Why would he do that? And it seems cruel, at the very least, not very good manners. And the disciples' response is even worse. They've become irritated by this woman's continual shouting to Jesus to have mercy on her. So they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, send her away. Her, Her pleading is annoying. And there's nothing in the text to indicate that their request included that Jesus should grant her a request. They simply wanted her to shout and stop, so Jesus would send her away. And we can understand the disciples' harshness, since they consider Gentiles beneath them and unworthy of their attention and time. But the question still remains, why did Jesus act this way? He even answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The answer is directed to the woman, but said to the disciples. But here's the confusing part. Hadn't Jesus already healed the servant of a Gentile Roman soldier? And did he commend this Gentile for his faith? Wasn't the gospel eventually supposed to go to the Gentiles as well? Wasn't Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations? Why then such an answer? And why wouldn't Jesus grant the woman her request right away? Again, we find that, see, that Jesus is being harsh with her, and we wonder why. But you see that's often the way it is. Guys, and real quick, this is a little bit of a side note, but we need to be careful how we interpret Scripture and make sure we do not build whole theology on excerpts of Scripture. What I mean by that is sometimes people will like to pull something out from just one section one passage of Scripture and build belief systems or characterizations of God on it. We need to always make sure we interpret Scripture with Scripture and be careful not to take passages out of context. The idea behind that, what I mean, somebody can look at this and interpret this to say, well, Jesus... Um, it was just a jerk. Or Jesus never intended to have the gospel reach the Gentiles. Right? He only meant it for the Jewish people. But that's not true when you use the rest of all of Scripture to see, no, it was always the intentionality from the very beginning. If you look at Genesis and everywhere else, there must be another reason then for it. But here's the other thing we do. Not only do we take Scripture out of context, excerpts, but we also do this with God, don't we? When something happens to us, when something bad or circumstances that we don't want or we don't like, when we take that out of context, we often think, God, why me? How can you do this? What are you, God? Are you a jerk? Why are you evil to us? Don't we do that as well? We end up blaming the Lord for the evil that befalls us. Even worse, we think evil of him. But I want you to be clear. We're using scripture to interpret scripture. There is no evil that proceeds from the Lord. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Exodus thirty four six and 7 says, The Lord is the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We might not understand all that God does or why in his sovereignty he allows what he does. But with this we do know he is holy and just and kind and merciful. So then there's another reason why he drew out this conversation. There's another reason then why he acted the way he did. And the main reason for Jesus' response here was to draw the woman out into a greater demonstration of her faith so that disciples can truly know what it means and takes to belong. They're battling against years and years of pharisaical t- teaching on this matter. To belong means you must be a Jew. To belong means you must do everything correctly. You must follow the law and traditions correctly. You must give a certain amount. You must worship a certain way. You must act a certain way. But what Jesus is saying in this passage says, no, I'm going against the teachings you've been taught. Jesus is saying to belong is to know a person. To belong is relationship. To belong, it's all about him. Now, there are two benefits of belonging that I want you to get today. First one is mercy, and the second one is a new status. And the first thing to they see that the first thing an outsider gets when she places her faith in Jesus is mercy. And that's what she was after, wasn't it? Have mercy on me, Lord. That's what we all need not advice, not just guidance. We need a Savior, we need mercy. And in this case, her daughter had been oppressed by a demon in verse 22. And in the Bible, demonic activities appears in other places in scripture, but it's particularly clustered around the appearing and the working of Jesus. When he came into the world, evil began to react. His arrival sets the kingdom of God and evil on a collision course. And so if you scan through the gospel stories, you'll see again and again, Jesus is confronted with demonic and satanic and wicked. And again and again, Jesus triumphs, driving out evil and establishing his rule. And the king woman seems to know clearly that's why he came. He came to destroy the works of darkness, he can set my daughter free. So she puts all her confidence in Christ. She begins to cry to him for mercy, and her faith elicits from Jesus precisely the grace she needs. Her daughter was healed. Theologian Jurgen Moltmann, I just like saying that name, Jurgen Moltmann, states the following. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he's driving out, uh, driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The Lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in the natural world, they are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Hey, I love that statement. That's what's happening here. That's what happens when we trust in Jesus. He overthrows evil in our lives. The amazing power of the way things were always supposed to be breaks in upon the disordered world that is now. The only truly natural things, transforming mercy, saving grace. It is righting the world that is unnatural, that is demonized, and that is wounded. For most of us, it might not be as dramatic as demonization, like this came in that family. But still nevertheless, the liberation of our lives from the grip of disordered, disorienting and disturbing evil that it has on it. It can be freedom from hell's fury and deliverance from sin's pollution and power. That is the gift that Jesus' mercy gives you when we trust him and put your faith in him. Isn't that the mercy we need? He alone gives it to you. He invites you to trust His trust him this morning and every morning following. So the first thing you get is this in this weird, messed up, broken world, he restores it. That's the mercy he gives to you. And it seems supernatural because this world is crazy and disordered, but it's more, nothing more natural than God restoring the world he created. Bringing you out of this darkness and granting you healing. So the first thing you get when you put your faith in Jesus is mercy. Mercy to overthrow your heart's darkness with light, to cleanse your sin-seared body and consciousness, and to set you free from the bondage of evil. He gives you mercy. And the second thing you receive is a new status. It's when you put your faith in Jesus, you have a new status. You move from being an outsider to a true insider. And that really is the big lesson of this passage. If you zoom out for a moment, look at it in context, you you go over to the previous page in 1st verse of chapter 15, you'll see Jesus is being assaulted and assailed by the Pharisees and the scribes. The experts of the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem are attacking him for breaking with tradition. He's now on the receiving edge of this judgmental hostility at the hands of these kind of insider elites. And in verses 10-20 through 20, we see Jesus taking his disciples aside and, and he uses this opportunity with his interaction with the Pharisees to teach the disciples how to think clearly about who the real insiders are and who the real outsiders are from God's point of view. We're using this language of outsider and insider and the Jewish categories were clean and unclean or defiled and undefiled. The Jewish thought objects of, and actions and especially people could be unclean that can make, un, make you unclean. But look down in verses 18 through 20 in chapter 15. Jesus points to his disciples as what comes out of your mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, wit- false witness, slander. This is what defiles a person, not what they eat with unwashed hands. And here's Jesus at his most revolutionary. You see what he's doing? He's taking these traditional categories of clean and unclean, defiled and undefiled, insider and outsider, and he's he's subverting them and transforming them radically. He's saying being clean or unclean, being defiled or undefiled, has nothing to do with what you do with ritual washing. He says it has to do with your heart. Being an insider or outsider has nothing to do with with, with, with whether or not you're born a Jew or your ethnic background, it has to do with your heart condition. And after teaching his disciples this, he then takes them to Tyre and Sidon. And following this engagement with the Pharisees, he now goes to a Canaanite woman who gets it. He moves into enemy territory, to Gentile turf, and here is this beautiful irony. Therefore, it's this Canaanite woman, not the disciples, not the religious scholars in Jerusalem, who understands that Jesus is Lord, the Son of David. He's the Messiah. She clearly expresses. And not surprisingly, Jesus' disciples want to send her away, they dismiss her because they didn't, still didn't get it yet. Even after all of Jesus' teaching, they didn't get it yet. But he draws it out so they can. He draws out because this is a real-life example. See, guys, you keep on following the Pharisees. You keep on thinking your ethnicity and what you do keeps on getting it right for you. Clean and unclean, undefiled and defiled, insider, outsider. But here, what I've expressed to you, here is it fleshed out. I'm drawing it out of her. I'm acting in this way, acting the way that you would probably be acting acting in the way that the Pharisees would probably be acting. Does she belong? Is it possible that a woman may in fact not to be, end up being a lost sheep in the house after all? I love this in the passage, verse 26. It's not ready to take this, this difficult passage of children's bread and throw it to dogs. That's how the Pharisees thought, the disciples thought the same way. Grace was just for them, just for insiders who outwardly conform. They don't deserve this. Other people don't deserve the same treatment. They're dogs. That, that word dogs, by the way, is not meant as a, the way we would interpret calling a woman a dog. It's actually meant for the term for Gentile, non-Jewish person. They call them dogs. I remember earlier in the passage of scripture, we had that confusing passage where you don't give the pearls, uh, pigs, wait, swine pearls and you, know, you don't give the dogs. That's what it meant. It wasn't like derogatory in the sense, it was derogatory, but it wasn't meant to say, well, it meant you're just, not a gen- you're just not a Jew. You're a Gentile. And some, suggest, there's some scholars suggest that Jesus' tone in this situation kind of would indicate a lot more of what he said, but we don't get tone in this passage. And you guys know how it is. You guys know how hard it is to tell tone in a text or an email, right? I've recently been confronted by some people at Waypoint that sometimes my text messages and even my punctuation conveys a tone that I don't mean for it to to convey. The staff at Waypoint called me out on this. For example, most of my text messages are very short and I often end them with a period. Now I was told by these younger generation, younger and wiser generation, that ending ending text messages with a period conveys harshness. I didn't know that. I thought I was just being efficient and practitioner of good grammar. But I was told that when I said, I'll be there, period, in the text message, that sounds harsh. Or, yes, period, sounds harsh. I wasn't aware of such a thing. I was just like, the answer is yes, period. I ended the sentence. Wasn't aware that I was being harsh in this, but I was taught. And I was like, well, why don't you guys use punctuation? I don't understand it, but that's the other point. I've also been called out for saying happy birthday, period. People said, who says period after happy birthday? And I'm like, I'm just, it's, I'm finishing the statement. It's a happy birthday. I'm wishing you a happy birthday. And they said, exclamation point. Maybe multiple. But then I said, I have to press shift something else. I don't want to do that. So period works a lot better. Okay, let's come, side note. And I bet you if I took a straw poll of how many of you guys regretting hitting send without actually checking the tone of your emails or messages, you would see that you're like, ooh, I didn't know that's the way it conveyed. And I say this because of voice and body language is missing. It's possible that what Jesus is articulating to her, conveying to her through his body language and tone, might be different than what she's getting. Because she's not put off. She steps up and responds, honestly, with kind of, in my mind, winning humor. Yes, Lord, and even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So if I'm a dog, I still belong in the master's house, don't I? And even the dogs get to eat from the crumbs. I'm not an outsider, I belong in the house. And Jesus, you're the master. Won't you give me the mercy I need? He did come for the lost sheep of Israel, but by her response, this woman demonstrates what the disciples and the Pharisees deny. She's discovered, hasn't she? She's discovered that we come to belong to God's people, not on the basis of our ethnicity or our religious rituals, but based entirely on the response of your heart to the person of Jesus. The outsider Canaanite woman is actually the insider after all, and she is the lost sheep that Jesus came for. Some of you know what it's like to be an outsider, an exile, a misfit. You feel what it's like to not belong, but the message of this passage is in faith in Jesus changes all that in incredible ways. It takes us from the margins and moves us into the very heart of God's kingdom. It adopts us into his family. It wins for us acceptance with God and membership in his body and his church. When you put your hope in Jesus alone, the, the power of evil in this world, and its pollution is overthrown in your heart and you're transformed, translated, taken away from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's love. You've moved from being an outsider to a true insider, from an exile to a citizen, from a stranger to the member of God's family. You come to belong. And honestly, don't you want to belong? I mean, isn't, that, isn't there a cry in your heart to want to belong? It's because you were made for it. You're made to belong. And this is what Jesus does. Maybe you've met with your share of judgment and hostility. Maybe even from the religious elite. Maybe even from the church. Maybe from pastors. Maybe from people who proclaim to be the disciples of Christ over the years. Maybe you've met with rejection and silence and insult like this woman in our story. I hope and pray that beginning this morning that what matters most is not what other people think about you, but what you think about Jesus. And that's what determines whether or not you belong, not whether or not a group will accept you. No, but it's what what you think about Jesus. It's him that you need most of all. That's what determines whether or not you belong. It's him that you need, his mercy, and the welcome into his family that only he can give. And maybe you're tired of feeling like an outsider today. Maybe you're listening to this and you've always felt like an outsider. Maybe, maybe that's the reason why you might be only listening to this via internet and they've actually never seen any of us or been here before. Maybe because you're used to being the outsider. And if you're watching this today and you're listening to this today, but you, something inside of you calls to say, no, no, I wanna belong. There's something yearning inside of me that I know I've meant for more. i am meant for a relationship. I know I've meant for a relationship with God. And today, something's stirring within me and realizing more and more. It's not accepted from the religious elite. It's not accepted from the church. But it's the fact that I choose to pursue Jesus. I choose to respond to his love. I know it's him that I need. Normally, what I'd ask for you to do today is if you're here, I'd say, hey, raise your hand, go pray with one of the prayer team people. But if you're at home and you're watching this, and this is you. We'd love for you to email one of the pastors because we want to walk with you. Because you called into this family together with us, you are not alone. And we're not perfect. We're often like these disciples. We often don't get it. I wish we did. It. I wish we got it better. But we're, we're walking. and We're trying to remind ourselves over and over again that it's not what we do as religious elite. It's the one we worship. And for you today, if you need that reminder again, can I just tell you, oh man, Jesus loves you. And it's not because you're so good and so pretty and you got all your life figured out, you got it together. And he doesn't forsake you because you've messed up and you've forgotten how to do life well and you make these weird decisions all the time and you just can't seem to get it right. He doesn't forsake you for that either. But out of his goodness and of his love, he chooses to love you. He chooses to pursue you and grant you what you need the most, mercy. My people, may you be reminded of that today. That it's all about Jesus. And in that choosing, he's called us to be people who are inside, yet who are so welcoming to everybody out. We're inside group, not because we're elitist, not because we're closed, not because we want nobody else to be in, but we're inside because we're known and because we're loved and we're called this relation together. But in this calling, where arms are open wide and say, please come and be a part of what we have. I remember growing up, that's what changed my life when I came to realize that I am a sojourner and we're all wanderers together and none of us really feel comfortable in our own skin and none of us really feel like we belong because what, we're, what I'm made for is relationship with God and being in fellowship with the saints together. And when I discovered that, when I received my new status and received that mercy, can I tell you that I finally found home. Most of you might have heard this sermon before, but there is a sermon that I preached one Sunday morning, and during the sermon that I preached on Sunday morning, I shared a story about how my mother told me, when I told her that I wanted to be a pastor. That's what felt called to the ministry. My mother and father, they loved me in a loving way. They weren't trying to put me down. They weren't trying to, but they were just trying to prepare me because they loved me. They said, Lawrence, you'll never, if you want to be a pastor, you better get better at speaking Korean. It's just reality. If you want to be a pastor, then the only way you'll be a pastor is if your Korean was better and you can go work at a Korean church because you'll never be a pastor in a white context world. And I remember hearing that and, and, and that shook me and rocked me and then I remember saying that in a sermon I looked out amongst our people and I said, my parents, I love them to death but they were wrong. Because I found my family and we were given a new status. And we can be family together. We can be insiders together because of the work of Christ. That knits us together deeper than blood. That knits us and brings us closer together more than any secret society or club out there. May you be reminded of that, my people. Please understand the really pressing issue isn't whether you connect with us, it's whether you connect with Jesus. And this woman shows us the way overcoming every obstacle her faith, gets hold of Christ. Will you trust in him? He has mercy for you. He's the one you need, and when you trust him, his mercy will be yours, and you will come to belong. Let's belong together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our status is no longer outsider because of the work of Jesus. But we are inside, we are connected, we have intimacy with you, God, our Father. We are part of your household. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that is who we are. We thank you for that kind of love. Thank you that, God, you drew this faith story out of this woman, that you contrasted it with what the Pharisees were trying to do with Jesus, that they were trying to earn salvation, they were trying to to work their way, to deserve their way, through ethnicity, through works, through giving, through whatever means possible, but you show us ultimately through this woman, this Canaanite woman, that has nothing to do with those things. It has only to do with her faith in Christ and your love for us, that sustains us, that gives us mercy that gives us belonging, that gives us a new status. God, we thank you for that kind of love. Thank you that we are now drawn together, knit together, called together to live as a family together, as insiders who have opened arms to the world outside. We're not insiders because we want to be exclusive. We're insiders because we're a family, but we want others to be a part of this family. So God, may you use us, may you remind us of our status and remind us of the mercy you've shown us so that we can share this with others. God, we love you. May we see your love more every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.